Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Welcome to a brand new edition of Freedom Books, Flowers and the Moon, the podcast brought to you each week by the Times Literary Supplement. My name is Stig Abel and I am the editor of the TLS. Here is a commissioning editor whose hair is entirely above reproach. I had never I had never considered that when you were comparing my hair to that of a poodle, it was a reproach no. necessarily. So you've I've, added that. Well, I haven't actually said there. your name. Thea, let it say hello. <laughs> uh, Alf update? Um... I have nothing to report, which is good news. Because he's, settle- he's settling again. He's settling, yeah, he's settling. Okay. It's well, going to go on for a, a long time, I well, think. This we pod- have to, in, we, for Christmas, so okay. this is how far in advance we're working here, for Christmas. You're planning Christmas we already? We have to bring him to London, because he can't stay by himself. And that's where my family will be, for various complicated reasons. Uh, and the idea of bringing Alf to London is just completely... It's May, though. I know, we, we, but we... Uh, okay. So there's plenty of updates to come. <laughs> we should get him in the paper. We should get him on the podcast. Yeah. He has an excellent yawn. It's very high pitched. <laughs> well, next time you're off, in inverted commas, working from home, we will, <laughs> yeah. we will, we will, we'll give you a call. Um, do you want to subscribe to the TLS? Of course you do. Here is how you can do it. If you live in the USA or Canada, go to podcast.the-tls.com. That's podcast.the-tls.com. And if you live anywhere else, including the UK, then go to the-tls.co.uk forward slash pod 19. And you get five issues for just £5 or $5. Coming up on today's show, Queen Victoria was born 200 years ago, almost to the day. I know, hasn't time flown? The first half of the TLS this week is devoted to Victoria and Victoriana, and our cartoonist Ella Barron has drawn a lovely picture for the cover. History editor David Horsepool is not, I repeat, not an eminent Victorian, but he's going to do his best and talk us through what we need to know about this anniversary. Uh, The TLS is also going to be handed out at Hay Festival next week, and to celebrate, we've gathered together a collection of Hay contributors and asked them this simple question. What books inspired you as a youngster? So we thought we'd gather together some TLS folk and ask them the same question too. (laughs) 
Queen Victoria still reigns over our historical imagination. Like the first Elizabeth, she's easily rendered in our minds as an oversimplified image. Squat and jowly, clad in interminable black, she scowls straight back at us. And the age she has come to embody even more so than the Elizabethan is still resonant today. We know what people mean by Victorian values. We're starting to publicly acknowledge the cost of Victorian imperialism. When Jacob Rees-Mogg something of a caricature of an MP and public intellectual, recently wished to hark back to a certain sensibility to stiffen the sinews of the nation, he published a book called The Victorians, Twelve Titans Who Forged Britain. We're not reviewing it in the TLS, but we are looking at lots of books, generally better written and researched, that are about the period. For, as Clarissa Campbell Orr notes this week, two centuries after her birth, there are still new things to say about Queen Victoria and her royal legacy. She nominates as a masterpiece Miles Taylor's Empress, which seeks to shift the narrative of a woman who was as much a Maharani as a British monarch. It's striking that three of the longest-lasting, most iconic and arguably successful monarchs in British history have all been women. But what if Victoria had been born a boy? Such a lad would have been the King of Hanover and so changed Anglo-German relations in the run-up to the First World War for good. To explain this and other thoughts contained in the paper is the TLS's very own populist who, like Jacob Rees-Mogg, is not specifically an expert in the Victorian period. David Horsfall. That's very correct. Hello, Stig. Hello, Thea. Why, not for you, obviously, but why does the Victorian period resonate these days, David, do you think? Well, I think there's, there's a bit more to it than the fact, the uh, simple fact that it's 200 years since the birth of Victoria and indeed of, of Albert, uh, which always helps people focus their minds. Yeah. Um, but it, the length of the reign is one of them, that it spans the century. And the amazing transformations that happened during that reign, I think... Uh, if you think at the beginning of uh, Victoria's reign in 1837, it probably would have taken about two days to get from London to Bristol. And by the end of her reign, it'd take about the same time as it does now, or possibly a little bit shorter, uh, something like three hours. Um, and by the time of her Diamond Jubilee in 1897, she was able to communicate with the whole of her empire, which famously spanned the globe by telegraph. So that's an amazing transformation that happened over this So the birth of modernity. Absolutely. It was the time of the birth of modernity, but we also look back to it, I think, as a sort of conflicted time of of British greatness. But, you know, was there a dark underbelly to that British greatness? So there's always an interesting debate to talk about. And possibly now, as we debate what Britishness is, perhaps more than ever, although I suspect we've often done it, but perhaps more than ever that sense of when Britain was really being forged as a global power becomes more pressing. Yeah, absolutely. Is there much new to say? Clarissa campbell Orr says that there is. Do you feel... I mean, one of your problems as history editor is an awful lot of the subjects you cover are have been covered for almost since they stopped happening. Absolutely. And so... <laughs> I'm thinking the there, Second World War is another good example, yeah. isn't it? And, and is there something new to say? Of course there is, but all historians always say that about everything because otherwise they'd be out of a job. I think in the case of the Victorians and the Victorian era, there's bound to be new stuff to say. There's new ways of looking at that period in history and all the many millions of people who lived through it. Uh, in terms of the Queen herself... It also turns out that there are new things to say. If you think that the kind of personal side of the monarch has been quite well poured over and um, looked at, there's a online, you can now look at 141 volumes of the Queen's 
own diaries. Mm. Um, so you have a real insight into her private life, but only a kind of edited one because I think her daughter took out anything racy about or she had controversial. S- had sex with the servants and that sort of thing. Exactly. Who knows? Um, do, do people not know that? I think people don't know. Yeah. Um, they, they speculate and they you know, write books and have films about her various relations sort of post-Albert, but nobody knows. So the personal side of things can get uh, rather trodden over. But looking at Victoria as a monarch, I think as this Clarissa Campbell or piece shows, and particularly in her focus on the Miles Taylor book about her as Empress of India... Uh, shows that there really is a, a new way of looking at her. I'd, I'd certainly never really thought about her as this master of soft power, which really yeah. comes out in this Yeah, piece. I think that does. And as Clarissa has in her piece, she contrasts it with the kind of classic view of the monarchy is it of a shrinking power being more and more trammelled by parliament and then by democracy and so on. And of course that was going on during the 19th century and had already gone on before Queen Victoria came to the throne. But at the same time, there was this sort of expansion of soft power. And particularly in India, if you think that about 20 years into her reign, the Indian mutiny happened, sort of what the Indian uh, called the first war of Indian independence happened, And the reaction on the British side to that was to take power away from the East India Company under Crown rule. And that was more than the Crown just standing in for British government. It also meant a sort of personal pact between the various royals. There are 500 princely states that uh, Campbell writes about in India to whom a direct appeal was made as monarch to monarch. Um, And so this idea that there was a royal power in India makes quite a lot of sense to me. And actually, with the concept of empire through the Roman Empire, emperors were rather regarded as human beings and fallible in Rome. But as you went further away, they were deified, they were seen as greater than they were in their home, which is possibly true of the British Empire as well, the, 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 sort of the iconography of the Queen, who in the 1860s was basically so unpopular there was a crisis, wasn't well, there? Well, at home she was very unpopular, and of course she never visited India, so that might have added to the That's kind strange, of mystique. Isn't, isn't that strange? Well, it would have been a huge thing for her to have gone that far I mean she wasn't a great traveller I don't think um, the Queen and she famously asked for her train from uh, Slough to London to be slowed down because at 40 miles an hour it was making her feel sick um, and I've, I've sat in a royal I think it is Queen Victoria's royal carriage you can go and sit in it in the York Railway Museum and it's very nice, well-appointed kind of Victorian saloon. So if if that was too uncomfortable for her, the idea of a steamer across. But the icon was therefore more important than the person. Yes, I think so. And her her son did go out to India. Um, her third son, uh, Duke of Connaught, was out in in India. So there was that direct royal connection. And Campbell calls it a kind of gestalt switch. Um, this way of looking at uh, Victoria rather than. This, this monarch having to submit to the politicians, uh, finding ways to expand her influence without it being a sort of direct lawmaking fashion. Well, let's talk of gestalt switches, right. if we may. Jane Ridley has written a counterfactual yes. account, uh, which came up originally, this idea came up uh, in one of our meetings, and Rupert uh, Short, the religionist, I think, mentioned this. 
because if Victoria was going to be called, if, if Victoria was going to be a boy, she probably would have been called Alexander. So the question is, what would King Alexander have looked like and done? And the challenge was set for Jane Ridley to write yes. about the putative life of King Alexander, the person Victoria would have been had she been a boy. And, and Jane Ridley is very well qualified to do so. She's the biographer, a biographer of Queen Victoria. Um, and uh, so well, she, she imagines King, King Alexander as um, looking bulgy-eyed uh, and mentions um, if Victoria had been a man, if King Alexander had filled her tiny shoes. Uh, so we have a kind of physical picture of possibly something of a kind of martinet. Um, but the, uh, the sort of political picture that Jane Ridley gives is fascinating. And there are um, interesting insights into what would have happened in Hanover because Hanover was um, the, the dual monarchy, but Queen Victoria couldn't be the monarch of it because of their own Hanoverian laws, which f- forbade uh, a woman to be the monarch, but King Alexander could have been the monarch, so it would have been a dual monarchy. And she speculates that that would have been more of a challenge for Bismarck to uh, dismiss um, when it came to unifying Germany, so there would have been a likely confrontation with Germany. And rather paradoxically... She also thinks that the court itself uh, back in Britain would have been less German. There wouldn't necessarily have been an Albert figure as a consort. Um, We know that Queen Victoria and her husband spoke German at home, um, and, and that probably wouldn't have happened. But most fascinatingly, I think, in her speculations are about the ways that Queen Victoria was able to keep power within the monarchy in a way that a more direct um, would-be absolute monarch of the kind of the sort of German model just wouldn't have been able to do. She says Victoria's gender saved the monarchy. Yes, yeah. And I think I, I, I understand that in this kind of paradoxical way that you would have thought that a stronger monarch would have done more to save the monarchy, but in fact, in a way he wouldn't have done because uh, his challenge would have had to have been reacted to by the real power in the land, which was in in Parliament and the the parliamentary government. It might have been a republic by now. Um, Well, it's possible, depending on how uh, the the reaction would have played out. I mean, it's always difficult with these speculations to, to wonder how far to go. But absolutely, it's possible. So, you know, in the long run, we might, as sort of modern Britons, look back and think, well, it was, might have been a missed opportunity, the kind of shoring up of the monarchy, and also this reselling, repackaging of the monarchy, which is very much Albert's work, as a kind of bourgeois family, as she puts it, as a sort of premier family to aspire to emulate in, in the country with their Christmas trees and their all gathered around the fire kind of idea. Um, if, if it had been a much more court-based, austere or grand-looking um, thing, that would have been very much more distant from, from the British public. It is striking that the three biggest monarchs, or the three, almost the three most long-lasting, I presume, yeah. uh, the three almost most notable in, in iconic terms in Britain are all women. Yeah. And they have shaped to a large extent. Uh, I think Elizabeth I isn't that long-lasting compared to, I don't know, Henry III or something. Yeah. But but certainly, yeah, they're much more important as monarchs than, than almost any, any other person who sat on the throne, which is a, an extraordinary thing because it, for a very long time in British history, it was impossible to be a ruling woman, really, as an example of 
uh, Matilda show yeah. in the Middle Ages. Talk about male men and women. The Ely Williams has given us a piece Ooh. of right on the, the Rebecca riots. Thea, you. This is so. It's so. Did you know good. about this? Uh, no, I didn't know about the Rebecca riot, uh, riots until this piece. Me neither. Um, was proposed and. Uh, it's just so interesting. I had no idea. Tell us, tell us, tell us. Well, I'll try and, and you tell know, you a little you bit. You knew about it, didn't you? I know a little bit about it. Because um, you wrote a book on English Rebellion. I wrote a book rebellion. called The English Rebel, which, and this is Welsh Rebellion. Um, I did include it partly because um, Wales in the 18, late 1830s and the 1840s was a kind of hotbed of rebellion, which went across the border as well. The Rebecca riots are part of a kind of uh, rural rebellion um, similar to the Captain Swing riots around the same time which were against threshing machines. In Wales the Rebecca riots were attacking uh, the tolls, toll gates and turnpikes and they were called Rebecca based on a a verse in in Genesis to do with Rebecca and it says in the the, uh, short story uh, Rebecca's let thy seed possess the gate of those which hate them. They attack these gates dressed as women, and that comes out in this. Why do they dress as women? I think as a way of disguising themselves and also to completely disconcert people who had to deal with them. They didn't really know what they were being attacked by. Um, and it, it, it was quite a serious um, uh, outbreak of violence and protest and it had some effect some of the people who were involved in it were transported but it did have some effect the the turnpikes themselves weren't pulled down but the tolls were uh, recast and stuff like that so it did have a kind of positive effect whereas at the same time one of the largest risings in British history happened in 1840 um, in Newport the Newport rising 10,000 people rose 22 and there was a chartist rising uh, 22 of them were shot dead and they attacked a, a group of soldiers as well and the ringleaders were caught, tried and they were sentenced to be hanged, drawn and quartered in 1840 God. Uh, that didn't happen possibly because 1840 I think was also the year that Victoria and Albert got married and it wasn't thought that this would be a very good wasn't look. wasn't really on theme. <laughs> so they ended up Why being transported that not known as well. Because that's more, that's I don't more know, death more than Peterloo. people should read The English Rebel, really. Really? It's, it's, it's it's in like, there. It sounds like a great book, but yeah. that's more death than Peterloo, isn't it? <laughs> yes, yes, it is more death than Peterloo. Peterloo is, it shows a branding. Which is a year before, is, of course, we're, we're in an anniversary of Peterloo, We are, of course. but branded after Waterloo and therefore immediately, I and mean, there's probably something in there, isn't it? That, that name has rung out through history because of... Because of the sort of branding, whereas yeah. um, the Newport Rising is rather forgotten, uh, but was a bigger... And it was You'd a kind of revolutionary threat, it was thought at the time. Um, You'd have to call it New Lou. would have to be called New Lou, really which doesn't work. sound... They probably thought about us. Yeah. People probably obviously thought about this. Happened. It's not worked at all. Before we go, uh, David, anything else? It's a, there's a lot of Victorian stuff. We've got Ruskin, Clough, Whitman. Victoria didn't say we're not amused. She didn't say we're not amused, and she, apparently. And Victorians and were often amused. They were often, they were often amused. They went to uh, marionette theatres. Oh. Uh, they went to music halls. <laughs> People suspended from the sky on bulls. They had a great time. And, of course, they went to football matches. Um, you know, there was a lot of, you know, Victorian time is also the rise of the, the modern sporting uh, Leisure craze. activity generally, I suppose. Absolutely. Absolutely. So anything else? That's, that well, enough? there's Arthur Hugh Clough, I think we, we did talk about as well. 
Um, I noticed he's a Go peculiarly on, a, modern. Give, well, well, give us I, a fact about Arthur. I'll give you a fact about Arthur Hugh Clough, also born in 1819, the poet. Um, so was George Eliot, by the way, and Herman Melville. Well, everybody was born in 1819. Who yep. was anybody? Yeah. But he said in this very exciting uh, precursor of our modern concerns: "For meat and drink and all things, there is one sole machine, not made with hands, not capable of duplication. This terraqueous globe." that moves incommunicably tied to one unchanging orbit. So he was a, an early environmentalist, and we should listen to Arthur Hugh Clough. We've got to protect our teriacuous globe. Absolutely. That's a good campaign slogan, isn't it? Yeah. Greta, I hope you're listening. <laughs> when you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This week, to coincide with the start of the Hay Literary Festival in Wales, we asked a selection of writers and thinkers to tell us about the books that struck them as young readers and which, in one way or another, have stayed with them ever since. The result is a series of snapshots from the reading lives of contributors including Stephen Pinker, Bernadine Evaristo, Catherine Rundell and Jared Diamond. We've given it the title Before the Tree to acknowledge how a book can, seed-like, find fertile ground in the mind of a young reader – This goes for people of any age, of course, but the right book, at the right time, can reveal something new about the same old world. Better still, it might inspire that reader to write something themselves. Michael Rosen, remembering the effects of first reading the American poet Carl Sandburg, writes about wanting to grab the world around me with the same energy and accessibility. And I wanted to match his egalitarian belief in the power of ordinary people's interactions. And... Speaking of ordinary people's interactions, we are joined now in the studio. (laughs) By a gaggle. I don't know, did we ever come up with a collective noun for a group of editors? TLS editors. A a flother? Ordinary editors. Yeah. (laughs) A mob like kangaroos? Come on, guys. A disgruntlement. A disgruntlement of TLS editors. (laughs) We're speechless. 
um, anyway, we're joined by a bunch of TLS editors to discuss all of this, as well as telling us about the books that they most fondly remember. Uh, so joining Sig, David and me are fiction and politics editor Toby Lishtig. Cue gags about how the two roles conflate. Oh yes, every time. Um, our feature editor Ros Deneen, who is shocked and not speaking to me now. <laughs> <laughs> and our arts editor Lucy Dallas. Hello, also shocked. Also shocked. Can we also cold. just do before we so get into shocked. this? You actually arrived early for the recording of this while we were talking to David about Victoriana. We and did. Matt, the producer, set you. A, this, this did happen. I've just not. I've not just taken no. some drugs and just. just no. no, what are you talking about, Stick? I really this don't happened. know. What yeah. No, and it, did it was happen. successful. They, so. He set you a challenge. He said, "Go and find me." Um, like we were children. Yes. He said, "Go and find me a meter-long stick." An elastic band, some gaffer tape, and the word colour in newsprint. And we responded just like and we, we were went, children. We okay, ran yeah. off. I just wanted to sod off. And we and did it. He sounds like a weird fetishist it. as well. <laughs> <laughs> a gaffer tape and a meter stick. Lying on. But you did it. You, and just so, do you know what? I take it back. You are all extraordinary. Yeah, exactly. You? <laughs> that is extraordinary. I, I just say, found a meter long stick. Yeah. You did it. And you've and got to hear this gaffer tape in the studio. This is like a scene from on Seven. It. <laughs> it's really not like a scene from Seven. Can I say, it's dear like listener? It's like not a literary like a version of Seven. Okay, so um, uh, welcome, one and all. <laughs> Um, let's start by picking our way through this symposium, shall we? Uh, do any of these chime with you, delight you, surprise you? I was very um, delighted to see Kemal Ahmed's contribution, which is um, Bernard Ashley's book, The Trouble with Donovan Croft, because it's something like I simply hadn't thought about since I last read it when I was probably about nine or ten. I've never heard of it. And, yeah, it was just it was just a book, book that I realised I had and read three or four times. I absolutely loved it. Have never come across it or thought about it in any way since. And read his contribution, just got this wonderful jolt of memory, as we do when we when we look back to our childhood reading, especially if we haven't thought about it for a long time. So it's a story of this young black boy who gets fostered by a white family and uh, he's traumatised and he goes mute. He doesn't talk at all for, as far as I remember, pretty much all of the book. And he's got this brother uh, who has to sort of be his guardian at school. And it's it's in the 70s, it's very racist. His mm. brother's getting a lot of uh, uh, difficulty from, from other pupils. And it was, just, it, was, it was incredibly affecting, I remember. And it was sort of, it described, you know, I, I did not grow up in this world at all. I grew up... Uh, in a in a very very white world, um, without foster parents, and you know, just in a in a, in a very untroubled family, and it, it was, there was something so other about it, and so um, empathetic about the way it was written. And I, I, I remember reading the book over and over again. And then, as I say, I haven't thought about it for many. And decades. interesting, probably as a kid, you don't always think in terms of race or in terms of the the, the experiences of others, because no. that's what childhood isn't really about. Yeah, so yeah. it's amazing that a book can do that. It really did. It really did. It really, did. It really sort of it just it, sh- it showed me another another world. And yeah, you know, he was a kid my age, and it was easy to you know he, he was interested in kid yeah. things. He was very into football. I seem to remember as as was I, and as was everyone else. Um, trouble with Donovan Croft. The trouble with Donovan Croft, and yes, yeah, so Donovan Croft is the boy, and he's 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 deemed sort of sullen and difficult by his teachers, and weird by the other by the kids. But he's you know he's he has this rich and, and angry inner life, which as far as I remember comes out very well towards the end. Yeah, amazing. Who else? Catherine Rundell said she liked um, she loved what Katie did, and I had forgotten. I was thinking about childhood books obviously for this and I remembered what Katie did and it's brilliant 1872 I guess I mean I couldn't have yeah I yeah. remember my sister reading all of those 
but I never, I never did. What? It's, it, well, and it's that American thing, and it, and it kind of, I think it led me on. I can't remember if it's that way around. It, I, I conflate it in my mind with Little Women. Mm. Yeah, with those yeah. sorts of stories. She's, it, it, it's, um, she, there's, there's quite a rambunctious family, and Katie is quite naughty and sort of tomboyish, and she's playing on a swing. That's how naughty she My is. <laughs> Shouldn't be allowed that. And it's there's something wrong with the swing, and they've told her not to do it before. I mean, this is really, you know, trying to remember it. And she's cross, and she does it anyway. And she plays on the swing, and then she has an awful accident, and is basically can't move. And is in it. No, it's all right. It gets. It sticks making a face at me. It gets happier. Um, is it for girls? Tradi- traditionally, so, I think I, it was probably aimed at girls. I'm not saying now. Don't look at me. Now Ros is looking at me. In front of me. <laughs> the next, I think, as you're growing up, any time other than now, books were really yeah. In split. 1872, in 1872, so were. Little Women was aimed at female yes. audience, for yeah. example. But yeah. I grew up. There were books that were for girls, and they probably still are now. I mean, everyone ignores yeah. it, but they were the books were split much more that way. Wasn't probably. It? I don't suppose my brother ever read it. But, no. And I absolutely devoured it. And, and did you read it because it was a strong female character? No, I, I read it. I mean, read it the same way you read anything because it was there. You just yeah. read whatever is in front of you, and and I loved it. And she kind of, you know, grew to love people and understand herself. And and it's, I think, it's very pretty strongly Christian. Now I think about it, the same as mm. Little Women. Yeah, but I didn't mind that at all. Well, you quite often don't pick that up at all. I mean, C.S. No, Lewis. No, no, yeah, I, did, I didn't get that. No, but that, that I did really no, I mind actually. Narnia, I did mind because. Because it wasn't obvious, it wasn't straight out. Could you tell though? No, and then someone told someone me, told and I went, yourself. "What? Aslan's Jesus? <laughs> what? No!" <laughs> Whereas this was just straightforward. Have you, you know? ever read the Screw Tape Letters? Anyone else read that by C.S. Lewis? No, no. So they used to play it in the lift. It's here. really, it's really good. And basically, what it is, it, it's a <clears> from memory. It's a letter written by a demon to another demon and it's basically hell is like a civil service bureaucracy and the scripted letters are from one demon training up a younger demon in the bureaucracy of deviling uh, and it's really fun and I've re- have you read it? I've read a bit of it oh, no. have, have, I misre- have I misremembered it? no I think it is quite fun oh. it's not as fun as like Molesworth I read Molesworth after you recommended it and it doesn't I th- tell me you didn't like Molesworth I think you have to be 11 don't you? I just I thought it was like a bit him. obvious. Molesworth is... Do you know who Molesworth... <laughs> of course. Yeah. Does everyone know, does everyone know Molesworth? No. So Love Molesworth. So what um, is it? What is it? How do you explain Well, he it? was the terror of 2B. Um, and he... It's a school kind of The thing. whole thing is... Uh, it's Ron Searle, isn't it? The whole thing's written in misspelled schoolboy um, Any fool know in Private Eye is Molesworthiness. Yeah. yeah. He's K-N-O. at St Custard's. He's at St Custard's. And there's just a lot of very, very cruel teachers and boys sort of kicking each other in the shorts and stuff. It's very funny. <laughs> Bad Latin. It's really funny. Yeah. yeah. I, I, started, so. I bought it because Lucy recommended it. Oh. My eldest son had a copy Sorry, of it yeah. and I, I found it recently and he'd gone through it aged eight correcting all the spelling. Oh, <laughs> oh that's magnificent. That, that would take a long time because every it really, every it really did. Yeah. That come is and work so here. beautiful. <clears throat> yeah. It really should. There's a sub editor in him, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Oh yeah. <laughs> um, is that was that one of your choices then, David? That book? Uh, no, it hadn't occurred to me. Do you, um, no, um, I, we're still doing other people's. I think we're choices. doing other people's. I was very taken by Marcus de Soto's choice, which would never have occurred to me in a million years. Oh, for God's sake! Yeah. Um, <laughs> he chose a mathematician's apology by G. H. Hardy, a 1940 uh, book about being a mathematician, which to me sounds extraordinary that you'd want to read that. But I think. 
you know, Marcus de Sotoy uh, emerged from it, the the man he is, uh, well, a leading mathematician. Well, this is this, this it, is rather inspiring. It was like a, a magical story that took you on a journey through infinity. This sparked my love of mathematics, ultimately inspired me to create my own mathematical proofs to take me to infinity and beyond. Pretty good. Unlock the secret garden of mathematics. Who knew? Maths are, uh, people who are really good at maths are a different species. Well, Absolutely. He, he gives his teacher a shout out, which is, I think, quite lovely. Mr. 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 Bales. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I was quite fond of A.C. Grayling mentioning the faraway tree. Because oh, I, yeah. I foist that on my children and they've both read it in a way that Ian Blyton, you're always a bit reluctant to foist because it's so backward and... Famous Five is particularly backward, I think. It's, you know, the girl, the it's not very well written, I don't think, no, but the, but, as well. But the Faraway Tree is really... I vividly remember reading that as a kid, the Faraway Tree, and Mr. S- the, the Spoon Guy and, and you know, clambering up the tree and the land of do-as-you-please and everyone eats jam all the time and stuff. It was all very jolly. And my kids, even though they live in an age of Fortnite and iPads... They, they took they, to it. They still kind of like yeah. it, yeah. That's there good. you go. Keeps them out of the Tom Gates books. Do your kids read Tom Gates? No, what's that? What's that? Is that Beast Quest or something? No, No, so Tom Gates, it's a kind of kid at school and uh, the texts are written like a diary form with drawings drawings in the margins. It's like Diary of a Wimper Kid, but it's not on the same level because Diary of a Wimper Kid, I reluctantly concede, is a work of genius. Really? It's very, very good. It's very good. I mean, I didn't much like it to begin with, but it's very, very good at what it does. I think Tom Gates is is good. I mean, Mm. I, I, I don't... It doesn't make me feel sad when they read it, as no. it some, some of these books. Uh, Ros, would you, you, got, you pick one? Um, I liked Bernadine Evaristo's choice, and she chose Under Milkwood, which yeah. and, which I never would. I didn't actually read that much as a child. I tried to a lot, but I couldn't really... Really? Yeah, I couldn't take it in. I was quite anxious and hypervigilant, so I couldn't switch. You know how some people talk about going to a book as a child and it being like a refuge? Mm. I couldn't. I, I couldn't it. switch off enough for that to be the case. So I really wanted to read them, but I couldn't. And yet you become them a, them you in. become a fiction editor in a, in a literary publication. Funny, when did it? the switch happen? Probably when I was at, when I was doing GCSEs, and they kind of took you through a book, a chapter at a time, a lesson at a time, and I realised how great it was. But as a child, I tried to read a lot, but I found it difficult. How interesting! So I never would have read Under Milkwood no. as a child, but. Um, Bernadine has recommended it and when I had um, my babies I weirdly put it on under Milkwood on YouTube the Richard Burton thing and played it to them like in the background because and I understand why she recommended it because even if you don't understand it as a child like the rhythm of it and the song of it is really nice and it conveys some meaning even if you don't understand the meaning of the words yeah so I liked I actually thought all of these suggestions I was a bit disappointed there weren't that many Proust in the original French, which no. you normally, <laughs> yeah, which you know, you know, in a tier less or summer books or tier less books of the year. Yeah, 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 we didn't ask for any Raphael, so yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there just seemed to be none of none of that. So that was good. That was good. <laughs> so are we going to do our own Thea? Well, I wonder. First, well, maybe this is part of it, but whether in other people's choices they can speak to the kind of consistency that we see in uh, Tony Juniper's contribution, because. That one, he, so he starts by saying that as a small child he was fascinated by nature, devouring the beautifully illustrated uh, natural history books of the Ladybird series. Um, so he says it was a particular privilege, therefore, when he, when he came to, uh, to become the co-author of the Ladybird Expert Guide to Climate Change, which is really nice and neat, but I can't... 
I the reading what little reading I did I was a bit like you Roz what little reading I did when I was a kid was absolutely nothing like what I enjoy reading now I don't think Mm. I'm entirely shaped I mean not least because I'm named after a childhood book Stick of the Dump of of course Um, which my great, bro- book. great book, great and book. I read it a lot. My brother, there was a poster of it in our bedroom, which we shared, and that's why he. And it was a Neanderthal kid who didn't look entirely dissimilar to me, <laughs> uh, and that's where the name came from. But I reckon I, I read thrillers really early. The same way you know, I all bang on about genre writing. I was reading because you, like you were saying, Lucy, all you did as a kid, or I did as a kid, was read whatever books were in the house, yeah, whatever and whatever they happened to be. So my parents happened because they were obviously adults in the seventies buy a lot of genre thriller spy fiction so Len Dayton and John le Carre and Hammond Innes and even a bit of that Dennis Wheatley and there's kind of that genre fiction so basically from the age of nine we even a bit over that I used to read those books there's nothing else to read and I remember it was bring your book to school day and I had this book by a guy called Colin Forbes who wrote really crap really genuine like eye-wateringly badly written books sort of spy books and I took it into school, uh, and it was all about murder and rape and and, and spying. And they're like, <laughs> remember that? And remember the teacher like going, okay, so let's see what books we've got. What's this one? Let's. Could you read out the back of it? And I started, started reading the back of it, and, like, and she went, okay, then we'll move on. <laughs> but stick. Did everyone else have the cat in the hat? Well, they didn't have cat in the hat, but they didn't have those. They didn't have those books. But I was reading those kind of. So that's completely shaped me as a as a reader, I think. That sort of genre, plot-driven, you know. But surely not that one in particular. It's rubbish. I, I can see it in my mind's eye now. I can vividly picture Is that what picture. you would choose as your, as, your, as your book for this symposium? No, I think it probably wouldn't be. <laughs> it wouldn't. It, well, no, no, it wouldn't. But I, I am conscious that I read what my parents read, and mm. that's shaped me more than anything else. There's a lot of talk of the Holocaust in my house. My mum's parents were both Berlin refugees, and my dad's father's family were sort of caught up in the holocaust as well and there was so my mum read a lot of adult holocaust fiction and I realized looking back for this for you know for today I read there were a lot of children's holocaust novels Hitler stole my yeah Hitler stole Pink Rabbit I Am David uh, by Anne Holm I was remembering obviously Diary of Anne Frank uh, The Mouse Burkhardt Spiegelman and so and not that I you know not that my adult reading is massively obsessed with holocaust fiction or whatever but I did I think I did progress to adult fiction around that sort of theme and not I get not just holocaust but kind of literature of incarceration um dystopia that kind of thing were you and distressed I, by it as a child I was I was yes and no I was completely fascinated completely fascinated I mean I grew up with lots of stories of you know a lot of my grandparents friends were also from that kind of milieu and I saw people with tattoos on their arms people you know people had been to Auschwitz and survived and whatever and it was quite a sort of common thing and you know stories handed down or whatever and so the the oral history of it was very interesting to me um but it's also that i think there's that child's enjoyment and i you know i use that word very cautiously but of horror yeah uh, you know we we like reading when we're kids about nasty things that happen somewhere else and there's a kind of safety in reading about it although i could sort of on one level identify with it because it had been my family it was also nothing to do with me and it was nothing to do with my very comfortable privileged life and I think there was definitely a kind of combination of fear but also comfort which sounds weird but I think no, I, I think, I think it's yeah Would you let your kids read it at the same age oh yeah yeah definitely definitely yeah. I don't think it, it, it certainly didn't do any harm you know I, I, I was just thirsty for knowledge of it and it it wasn't unspoken about it wasn't that kind of I think for my parents generation when they were growing up in the 50s it was very much don't talk about this 
you know, a, appalling thing that happened in the last few years. It was too close. But by the time I was growing up in the 80s and 90s, it was That's quite quite easily spoken about. The horror part was what little reading I did do uh, was very I'm much... I'm amazed by this that you two aren't readers. I mean, I just, I, I, was, I, I drew, as a, as a child, I was just drawing all the time. Really? Yeah, um, and I, was, I wanted to be a cartoonist for ages and ages and ages, so I did my own cartoons. Oh. <laughs> could, you, um, could you do that now, do you think? Uh, when Ella, when Ella's, <laughs> on the weeks that Ella's off? Yeah, yeah, we? whenever Ella's on holiday, yeah. I just step in and yeah. fill that. Cartoons as in, as in cartoon strips with words yeah, as well. Yeah, or, yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, but no, the reading was things like Alan Garner. Oh, um, the Weird Stone of Brisingham. Yeah, oh. and the Owl Service. Yeah. More, yeah, more the Owl Service, the one set in Wales in the old manor house. I, used to, I, I was so frightened of the Owl Service. I read it once and then so afterwards good. I couldn't really look at it properly again. Same. Couldn't really look at the Same. cover. Same, I remember it was brilliant. putting it on my shelf I and putting re- another book in yeah. front of it to cover up the cover. Really? Yeah. 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 It's, I still think it's pretty terrifying. Like Joey and Friends when he puts the book in the fridge. A bit like that, but that's, that's like that. Little Women, isn't it? In the end he puts that's Little Women. Oh, because it's so sad. Yeah, he can't bear it. Andrew, yeah, so Andrew from our office will be listening to this <laughs> nodding happily because he is the great friends aficionado of the team. He is, he is, and he will remember that, um, so, that bit. So horror books? Horror books, yeah. I mean, the, the one, the, the Owl Service, we had a good piece. Um, it was the 50th anniversary of it a couple of years ago and we had a really interesting piece which completely, a bit like what you were saying, Toby, about Kamal Ahmed's contribution to the symposium, triggered this memory in me. I'd forgotten how obsessed mm. I was with Alan Garner. So Dimitra Fimi wrote this this interesting piece about the owl service and, and it was so much, obviously, it was so much more complicated than I understood at the time. As with all the best books, I think, you don't realise when you're a kid. You can read them on one level and then years later you're like, oh yeah, the subtle class politics in that novel were, you know, fascinating and, and whatever. But yeah, that, and then there was also the... Um, the what was it? The Oxford Book of Nasty Endings, which was a series of um, what a great title! Yeah. Can we have that in TLS books? You think it's the excellent. TLS Book of Nasty Endings? <laughs> I could get behind that. Um, it was. It was. Well, it was. So it was. Thir- it was edited by Dennis Pepper, um, and it was thirty stories by um, oh all sorts. Uh, well, Roald Dahl, Robert Scott, Ian Nesbitt, T. H. White, Ray Bradbury, um, just all these stories with twisted, dark endings. So that thing of being, you know, really unsettled, but on your grandparents' but sofa, safe. so you're yeah. safe and fine. I quite like to read that now. It's really good. I'll lend it to you. Yeah. I've still got it. <laughs> Obviously, it's yeah. not going anywhere. Give that to my kids. <laughs> my thing with our, those of us who have children, do you worry that? I think the books that we read as kids were much less focused on children, so you're often being stretched by books because you read books that exist in your family home, uh, and books generally, I think, were were written less at, aimed at a specific audience well think so of Robert Louis Stevenson I yeah, mean Treasure Island exactly. is, is a children's book but I think if you gave it to a child now they'd. I mean, well I, I, I think all the books I've read, I've read Treasure Island with my older son I haven't tried it with my younger son mm. and if you read a book with your mm. kid you can get away with it but yeah it's not going to work if you just give it give it to your whereas if, you, if your kids grow up on Die Over Wimpy Kid and Tom Gates these books I'm talking about, I find interesting they've lost negative capability i think children of my children's generation have no negative capability they have no ability to be uncertain to be unsure to be stretching after words they don't know because almost everything culturally is presented to them in neat packages I, d- I disagree a bit my little girl she's only six but she's really into the otterline books by chris riddle and they are very uh while age appropriate very clever there's quite a bit of 
stretching and wonder and strangeness and baroque and language as well baroque it? language and there's a lot of in jokes hmm. that some for the kids and some for the parents and some of the kids will get later on and yeah. I don't know I, that- I find lots of the stuff of that age group is you know I, when I reread Just William which is the book I read a lot as a child if you pick up a Just William book the vocabulary and the sentence structure and the cultural references are very 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 difficult and if you read a, an equivalent book to that now, it seems to me of a completely different order of writing. I'm not saying one's better than the other. It just feels that notion of easy, that stretching and, and reaching after vocabulary isn't as common as it might be. I know what you mean, and there, there is quite a lot of kind of serving up of stuff which which doesn't take long to read and doesn't take that much. But and there's nothing wrong with that. There's no, nothing no, wrong with actually still reading, do, isn't it? I was going to say, but actually Catherine Rundell, who was the one who said she liked what Katie did, she's a brilliant children's author, yeah, and she does... Her stories are quite rich, and actually, you don't always know. I remember my son reading one of them and going, but I don't know if he's the baddie or not. You know, she leaves quite a lot of uncertainty, so that's nice. And you've got to, you know, you think about it afterwards. So there's still, that stuff is still around, but maybe there's, the other stuff is very, is is easier to access, maybe. And maybe you shouldn't think about, maybe I shouldn't think about reading in terms of stretching, because then it loses its charm. You should either just find stuff that does help you develop language and it's got to be first of all a good book and then it will have those effects rather than... than and I think there's always, a, there's always a chance that anything you press on your children they'll resist. I certainly, the book that I thought of choosing for, for this, uh, which I had at home, I was meant to bring it in, is called People in History by R.J. Unstead who was a very, very, very popular historical writer um, of the kind of 50s, 60s, 70s. He was a school teacher and he, I looked up about him, he wrote a review for the Times Educational Supplement of a history textbook saying how incredibly boring and off-putting it would be for children and it made history dull and he was sort of challenged to write a more interesting history book and he did one called Looking at History and then People in History in 1959 followed it up and one beautiful thing about it is um, it starts in rather bigger print than it ends in so it's quite a big fat book and you start reading about the Romans and then on to King Alfred and so on and St Alban and various people in sort of big fat print and short paragraphs and by the time you end reading about Robert Fleming and that sort of thing it's in rather smaller print and it's a bit more grown up so you sort of grow up with it and to me it was completely completely fascinating and wonderful stories from from British history uh, from throughout British history and it's sort of less blimpish than someone like um, Rhys Mogg though written about <laughs> 60 years ago there are lots of women in it for better, example, be, better prose I'd imagine much better prose we haven't talked and, about the prose in the Rhys Mogg book before. oh that's shocking stuff Dear and me. it also did occur to me that, that Unstead is also responsible for that that thing you were talking about with Tony Juniper for something that I had he wrote a book, much slimmer book in that series called Princes and Rebels and I uh-huh. I kind of name checked it in a book I wrote um, the English about Rebel, Rebel. That, that, that's the book yeah. um, <laughs> I mean, this is, the, is this the fourth time that book's been mentioned yeah, in this podcast? Yeah, no wonder you're willing to do this this is basically an advertorial that's, that's, yeah, well stick, I'm just, you know his yeah. master's voice, I'm taking, I'm following, yeah, following well, a lead yeah. <laughs> Um, but it really did. Good it really did bear fruit very, very many years later. And I do think it's a tremendous writer. But I have tried to encourage both my children to, <laughs> not and they could not be less interested. I did that with my grandpa. Uh, was a print person at Ladybird Books, 
uh, and he was uh, he worked one of the print machines in Ladybird Books. So growing up, I had all the Ladybird books, and I can still now, as we talk, I can imagine the the kings and queens. I can see Henry V. I can see the drawings. I was I can we were talking about cheese, genuinely talking about cheese, and I was remembering the Robin Hood. There's a page in Robin Hood where he walks past a man sitting on bridge and he's eating a hunk of cheddar and a hunk of bread. And I, I still have to think of that all the time uh, in my mind. And those books, and I've given them to my kids and they kind of, there's ultra fashion look at them, but maybe they're not all that. But as for me, that was a whole world of history that you could just get relatively quickly, relatively easily. And I do think that, although I like things like horrible histories, I wonder if that's giving you the kind of alternative version before you know the traditional version so yeah. it's sort of it's an alternative to something you don't already understand which i'm not sure if the joke works quite so well because they're not yeah. actually it's not the history with the boring bits left out because they've never had the boring bits exactly all histories like that and and so you don't really have much of an idea of history itself it is good horrible histories though isn't it yeah yeah i'm i'm, I'm very much in favor of it in general yeah my someone's asked me about owen glendower and i remember thinking, where, where the hell did that come from? Uh, I wasn't just asking about Henry VIII. You know, who, what do you think about in King Glendown? It's because of something in... Well, Robert. Welsh Rebel, of course. Uh, <laughs> it seems to me, actually, you could have written a book... You couldn't know. No, he didn't write a book about Welsh Rebels, <laughs> although you should have done it, it would appear. You, have, you still can. Yeah, you visit Wales all the time, Everybody I believe. Knows that the Scots, Irish and Welsh were rebels. The idea was that um, people don't think of England as having... Good idea. History. Yeah, but that book sells itself in some ways, Brilliant doesn't it? Brilliant idea. Well, <laughs> if by that you mean doesn't sell very much, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Lucy and Roz, what are we going to have? Books that shaped your childhood? Um... I don't know if it shaped me. I mean, it didn't. I don't think it shaped my career. I mean, you'll see why. But the one that sticks in my mind that I read again and again and again and again that I can still remember lots of is The Once and Future King by T.H. White. Oh, yeah. Um, and I don't really know why. It took me a while there's to time. get to reading it. In terms of... What do you mean um, there's time? For, for you to achieve don't that destiny. Yeah, exactly. Oh, I see. Yeah. No, I was going to say because <laughs> I'm not yet yeah. the king. No. Yeah, exactly. That's what David's point. The monarchy is a great land of but opportunity. I wouldn't because I read Ooh, about yeah. it a lot, so I feel I would have you know some, how it works. some yes. of the qualifications. Yeah. Uh, and it took me a while to get into it. It's quite difficult for younger kids because there's a bit at the beginning that's quite horrible. He's very good at doing kind of village life and it's quite brutal. Do you want to know the brutal yeah, bit? Yeah, So there's a. So there's <laughs> I told a you guy, my reading. <laughs> exactly. There's a guy called Watt, W A T, without a nose, and the kids throw stones at him. And one day, um, he grabs one of the kids and bites his nose off. And, oh, yeah. and and first of all, this was this was read to us, and I would have to say stop stop at that bit. I couldn't get past that bit when I was quite little. Like a Victorian heroine. A bit like that. But then Smelling later salt. on yeah. I read it for myself and it's okay, everyone, because then what makes friends with a boy goes off and they both look after the dogs. Is that Kay? In no, it's not Kay. I mean, oh. what what goes off? What, what the, but with the boy, he bit the nose off. Yeah, because they're, forgiving they're reconciled. I mean, he is very forgiving. It is yeah. very forgiving. But they both find happiness with the dogs in the court of Sir Ector, who is the, um, what do you call it, sort of adoptive father of the wart, yes. who is in fact King and this, Arthur. And this is the sword and stone. This is the book that... It's that, 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 the, the whole thing. It's part trilogy. of it, yeah. yeah which so became the film, the Disney film. Yeah, so it starts with Arthur very young and very put upon because he's the he's the poor relation. Is that Ward? That's the Ward. Yeah. Yeah. And but you, and you don't know that's King Arthur. He's just a little boy and he's running about and he has to do errands and he's you know, he's very much the underdog. Yeah. And then at some point he meets Merlin and Merlin teaches him not he teaches him about the world by being an animal. 
So yeah. the first book, you know, for a kid, like he's, he he flies and he's an ant and he's a goose and he's and it's just magic. But so what happens to the guy with no nose? He stays with the dogs and they're happy. It's fine. He's just he just let, it, let, it, let it go. Yeah. Uh, he's fine. No, no, and the dogs are fine. The dogs yeah. are quite important, actually. The whole animal world is quite important. Uh, 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 but then it tells the saga so, of the sorry, whole thing. So the thing. guy who's been mutated has to live with the dogs. No, he likes living with the dogs. All oh, right, like, that's his why job. Does he he no, why does he have no nose? The first guy. Yeah. I don't know. No, 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 no. How does he smell? Well done. Yeah. I've been thinking about that for a minute. I thought I wasn't going to say that. And quite important. Hang on a second. Did he have his nose cut off, kind of judicially? No, I don't think so he just um, was you know he was born that um, way like lady gaga i mean i know she's got a nose but you know what i mean anyway look the thing is you start off with it's a bit like does lady gaga not have a nose no she was no she says born that way That's oh. Oh. come on guys get with it your cultural anyway, references was, are look far above yeah there's a pop cultural riff should we go on a should we go on a treasure hunt <laughs> <laughs> The point about yeah. the book, though, is that it moves from the childhood through his young adulthood when he becomes the king and then to late in life, and it gets very complicated and very sad. And it sort of takes you the whole oh. way. And I just sort of thought, and still think in a way, that the whole of life is in there. It's got everything. Oh. And I think it's probably Except quite a weird it. book. I remember my parents kind of saying, very odd man. <laughs> I think it probably was a very odd man. Sounds I don't know like much it. about him. No, but, I mean, really oh, quite odd, oh I think. Um, uh, Ros, we need yours. Yes, yeah. sorry. Um, so one of the few books I do remember being completely engrossed by was Danny Champion of the World. Yeah. And I started reading it again the last few days, and it's amazing yeah. and completely different when you're an adult. So when you're a child, you just have this story of Danny, whose mother died when he was four months old. Danny lives in a gypsy caravan with his dad. Danny's basically completely in love with his father. He says, I love the way he moves. When he smiles, he smiles with his eyes, and he's a car mechanic, and he teaches Danny how to drive cars and fix cars. But Danny's dad is also a poacher. Oh. And Danny ends up going to sort of save his father. And... Oh, it's just amazing. Royal Dahl is incredible. He has so much respect for children's feelings and emotions. Yeah. And he still lets you encounter like the difficult stuff, but with such reverence for how children think and behave. And see as well. He talked about how you have to have a child's eye view of the world, and that for him involved, he's a very tall man, involved getting down on his hands and knees and looking at the world around him from right. that vantage point. And it really comes through in his fiction as well, I think. Yeah, it makes That's sense. And then when, but then when you, you look at this book from an adult's perspective, you're like, oh, Danny's completely in love with his father. And Royal Dog captures that feeling so much of like being in love with your parents. Danny's so in love with his father, and his father's not looking after him that well. And his father's off poaching. <laughs> his father's off poaching. He put food on the table. To put food on the table, really? No, no. he doesn't because it's an he's art. He's a car mechanic. Yeah. He's, he's they, don't, they don't really eat them, do they? No. Not much. He does it's because he doesn't like the landowner as well. He doesn't yeah. like the Stick it up to the landowner. Yeah. What's his name? Yeah. Is he an English rebel? <laughs> I couldn't yeah, possibly say. Yeah, they all are. Everyone yeah. in the village, like the doctor used to poach, like everyone is, and they're all against the the landowner. Do you know what I feel really? I, I really enjoyed this. It's been lovely. It's been <laughs> such nice choices. Apart from David shamelessly plugging his book, it's well, been. <laughs> I believe it's RJ Unstead. Yeah. <laughs> it's been it's been lovely. Uh, that's all we have time for this week. Our thanks go to the TLS team of David Rees, Mog Horsepool, Toby Lishtig, Lucy Dallas, and Ros Deneen. Use those codes I mentioned to subscribe to the TLS and never miss an issue. Next week we remember 300 years of Robinson Crusoe, among a host of other things. Come back next week for more. Until then. From Thea and from me, goodbye.
Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.